Hi, and welcome to today's episode. Just a side note, you don't have to worry, we did do this interview in person, but this was taped much before the global pandemic. And unfortunately, I ended up releasing it during this social distance time. But I promise you, this was all done way before then. And we're talking with Dr. Todd Webb. He's the chair and associate professor of the Department of History at Laurentian University. He did his education at the University of Toronto and at York University. I also want to add that we did this interview in his office and there was a lot of movement that day. It was very happy movement, but it was sometimes loud. So I apologize for any of the extra sounds you might hear. It didn't really matter. It was such a great conversation. As you know, I love talking to people who are passionate about their topic, from scholars to students to academics and amateurs. And you might have noticed that not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time to delve into the riots of this history, eh? So today we're with Dr. Webb, and we have a very interesting topic that might not be so well known <laughs> at this point, but hopefully after this time spent listening to the podcast, you'll know a little bit more and perhaps look into this topic. So actually, Dr. Webb, if you don't mind presenting your topic, that'd be really good. Sure. Today I'm talking about a series of riots that took place in an English village just south of Leeds called Yeadon. Uh, in the 18, early 1850s, involving several competing strands of Wesleyan Methodism as the church sort of begins to divide in the early late 1840s, early 1850s. So it's, a, as we say, a now pretty much unknown, but quite a cause celeb at the time. that It made it into newspapers. As far away as in Australia, they reported on these riots because they are pretty extraordinary in the history of Methodism and that they actually involve physical violence amongst Methodists. Certainly when the church began there were anti-Methodist riots. Uh, as Methodism began originally as a breakaway from the Church of England in the 1730s and 40s and 50s, uh, when a man named John Wesley famously feels his heart strangely warmed. He goes and he is revived. He, he finds God again and decides that the best way to reach the poor and others in England is to go out and preach to them. And the Church of England doesn't like this. A lot of Church of England ministers, because they feel Wesley, though he himself is an Anglican minister, is intruding on their turf in their local villages, towns. And so there are anti-Methodist riots that break out and people try and kill Wesley oh, as he goes around preaching. He is at one point dragged by the hair between two competing mobs who want to either drown him or stone him. And eventually <laughs> the constabulary or the magistrates come and tell them to leave him alone. And say, don't kill this man, just, you know, rough him up a bit. And they let him go. But after that, after sort of the early days where there is quite a bit of anti-Methodist violence... After Wesley's death in 1791, the Methodists more or less separate, become their own church, their own organization, still vaguely tied to Anglicanism, but running their own show. After that, the violence drops off, just because they go and do their own thing. There's a bit of intrusion on Anglican territory, but it's all right because they're a separate church now. So did they build actual buildings yeah, at that they, point? They, yeah, they begin to put up chapels, okay. uh, sometimes too many. They can't afford to actually support them all. They build just too much. They get into some financial trouble by the 1810s. But generally the church runs along well, separately from the Church of England, up into this period I'm going to talk about today, when everything seems to suddenly, very suddenly go very wrong for the whole so church. So everything turned for the worst. <laughs> That's right. About the mid-19th century. It happens with a lot of Anglo-American churches, actually. They all seem to suffer a crisis of some kind in the mid-19th century. Interesting. Did you want to give it a little bit of background on the Wesleyan Church? Did you want to start with the riots at that point, or did you want to talk about some of the players prior to I think to I'll riots? talk about some of the players before, just because you need to know some of the sort of the figures and, and a bit about the village where this is happening, this village of Eden in uh, Yorkshire. So by the mid-1850s, the Wesleyan Church in Britain starts to divide between two branches. There's a group led by a man named Jabez Bunting, who has one of the greatest names <laughs> of all time. Um, and he and his group who form the majority, are generally considered to be what are called Wesleyan Tories. And so they're vaguely tied to the Conservative Party in England, sort of take a conservative line on a lot of political issues, 
but also want to move the church towards a more middle-class, respectable position. So they want to get away from early Methodist practices. Like the early Methodists used to have these very enthusiastic revivals. Remember, there'd be people jumping up and down and screaming and finding God in very demonstrative ways. Bunting and his friends think that is too alienating of people with money who they need to support the church. So they want to move the church sort of inside, out of the fields, out of the woods, move it into regularly built churches, have an educated clergyman, uh, have a centrally run church out of London. Right? It's a little more organized, similar yeah. to other churches. Yeah, they want to become basically Anglicanism with a bit more spirit and without bishops. They don't have bishops, they just have what's called the conference. Actually, it's a group regular ministers gather once a year and decide what's happening in the church. What do we need to do? So on one side, there's these guys, the Wesleyan Tories, who are taking the church, sort of, as I say, towards a middle class, somewhat more boring or more staid uh, version of Methodism. Then there's a minority that really opposed this called the Wesleyan Reformers. And they see this as a betrayal. You see that the whole Buntings program is a betrayal of Methodism. Right? They say, okay, no, we don't need to go become more middle class. We need to move away from that, go back to the original roots of Methodism. We need more revivals. We need less education. We need more being out there with the people in the street. And the main guy who leads that is a gentleman named James Everett, who is one of the more difficult figures in Wesleyan Methodist history. Uh, just because he is a weird, weird guy. He is completely paranoid for most of his life. If you read his nine-volume biography, autobiography, and it's just massive, the thing, it's the most, I think I described it somewhere, as arid, stricken, and baffling. I mean, because he basically reimagines his life with himself as the hero in all circumstances. He works out most of his aggression against pretty much, at least I've had disputes with almost every other Wesleyan minister in the church. And he is the guy who leads sort of the Wesleyan reform drive to save the church, as he sees it, from this move towards reform. And he does this mostly, well, one, he writes biographies of Methodist ministers, which he uses to settle scores with his enemies. At one point, in one of his books, he has a short biography of a minister named Richard Burke, who had died in 1778, and Everett's writing this around the 1820s, 1830s. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, he actually compares Richard Burke to an Edinburgh murderer named William Burke, the famous Burke and Hare murders, where they kill people and give them to the anatomy school. There's no reason at all to make this comparison, as far as I can Besides tell, other than name. to be mean. Yeah. <laughs> I say, well, he's a Burke and he's a Burke, yeah. and I'm just going to cast some shade on this old gentleman. But there's no historical evidence. No, there's no <laughs> link at all between Richard Burke and a murderer in Edinburgh. Yeah who is eventually anatomized, actually, after he's caught. But, I mean, Everett tries. The comparison seem favorable to this minister, but it's just weird to make the comparison at all. So he does that kind of thing publicly. But more damagingly to the church, Everett begins to write a series of anonymous pamphlets called the Fly Sheets, which attack Jabez Bunting and his friends and the whole new structure of the Methodist church, usually in a very scurrilous way. Like, he basically accuses them of financial irregularities, of personal irregularities, of imbibing too much alcohol in various points, accused them of being basically closet lushes, which the church frowns upon, of course. It basically throws everything at them that Everett can think of, and it's sent out to all the ministers, or most of the ministers in the church, which causes quite a kerfuffle, because in those days you had to pay, is the person who received the mail who paid for it. Right? You didn't put a stamp on it and send it out. When you got a letter, you paid for it. And Everett starts sending these out, and they are quite thick. <laughs> and some people are getting very angry because they have to pay the postage on these fly sheets. And I've seen letters back, written back to Jabez Bunting and the other leaders in London saying, like, you need to get a hold of this because this is killing me. It's expensive. It's <laughs> <laughs> very expensive mail to be attacked by some guy we don't know who. Yeah, because it was anonymous, as you yeah. said. As I found in my own research, Everett never admits to having written them. Probably because it's just, it doesn't look good to have mm -hmm. written these pamphlets. I have found pretty solid evidence that he has, and that phrases in his own letters then show up in the fly sheets. So as long as he's somehow connected, probably the main writer of them. By 1849, the whole of the Wesleyan church is in an uproar mm -hmm. over these fly sheets because they want to find out who's writing them, who's attacking these ministers, and how to stop these personal attacks, which are disrupting the church. Because, mm -hmm. of course, laity, those, you know, the laymen and women the people in the pulpits they start to get wind of them so they start to question their ministers and everything starts to fall apart 
This kind of sounds a little bit like part of the Reformation that happened so <laughs> so much earlier than this, right? It's a it, similar pattern, it yeah, seems. It follows a similar pattern. You get a nice unified reform movement, yeah. and then it just all begins to Dissolve. <laughs> crumble apart. Yeah. So as I say, this is the flashing start to divide the Wesleyan Methodist Church in Britain. At the Conference of 1849, Bunting and his friends get out enough votes to expel James Everett from the church, as well as two other men were seen as being closely related to it, a guy named William Griffith Jr. and Samuel Dunn. And so they expel them and think this will be the end of it. We'll cut the head off the reform movement, and that'll be it. Of course, what they're not thinking is that by expelling these guys from the church, they also release them from all church discipline. And so now Everett, Dunn, and Griffith go on a barnstorming tour of England trying to just whip up hatred against the leadership of the Wesleyan Methodist Church. And that's kind of the broad background of what happens in this village of Yeadon is that Everett, Dunn, and Griffith are touring the country, getting people angry, uh, basically urging them to stop giving money to the Wesleyan Methodist Church, to stop listening to their ministers, to riot, even. So they didn't just turn back against all the church, they just turned back against one part of the church? Against, yeah, this conservative... Yeah. so they didn't really touch the, the part they were in prior to this. Um, or did they turn against They begin to sort of draw people away from the Wesleyan Methodist Church and begin to form their own... Okay, so they of, are attacking all of it. Yeah, they're broadly. attacking all of it. Mm -hmm. But especially its leadership, this Jabez mm -hmm. Bunting and his conservative friends, who they point to as the cause of all the ills in Methodism, possibly in the world. Um, in the fine tradition of muckrakers. <laughs> so yeah, that's the context here, at least the broad context, that the church is falling apart. These three men are doing their best to destroy it in the interests of what they think is pure Methodism. And Jabez Bunting and his friends are doing their best to shore up the church from these attacks from these men who they've now placed outside mm -hmm. of the church. The guy, they're called the three expelled in Methodist history. It sort of makes them into something heroic, I guess. Even almost though like a, a sacrificial <laughs> lamb or something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so they've been sacrificed to the greater, to the glory <laughs> of Methodism. And they're martyrs and like to see themselves as martyrs. The more I read about them, the harder it is to see them <laughs> as martyrs. They seem fairly self interested in many ways but I do believe they think they're doing the right thing but sort of bunting yeah. and his friends so it's a pretty feral atmosphere out there in uh, these villages of Wesleyan Methodism as people have to start to choose sides mm -hmm. and so uh, then that comes to the village of Yeadon or Yeadon I keep saying it wrong <laughs> it's just quickly though so the Wesleyan churches were all around England yes and yeah. were they more north more south like did they seem to be spread out quite well or they're mostly concentrated in the Midlands and the north of England which is mm -hmm. kind of the heartland of Methodism which is another grievance people had with Jabez Bunting because he set up the headquarters of Methodism in London where Methodism was actually quite weak mm -hmm. so the heart they'd say why aren't you up like in Manchester or Birmingham or Leeds where there's most of the Methodist mm -hmm. congregations are so of course, the reason is power is in London, and so that's where you want to be. Money and government and all these people you need yeah. to influence when like, you're sending out missionaries to New Zealand or Canada or South Africa when you need permissions. It's easier to go over to the colonial office that's down the road than it is to take a coach down from Manchester or Birmingham. Yeah. Then we're talking more close to Yorkshire, I guess, Eden? Uh, it's... Like it's in the West Riding of Yorkshire, I think. Yeah. It's, it's Yorkshire just south of Leeds, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell from my... The, <laughs> I should be more clear on that, but yeah, it is No, in, no, just to have an idea of where, where yeah. we're still... Yeah, it's the West Riding. Everything. That's okay. We can look up Leeds on Google yeah. Maps if we need <laughs> That's to, right. right? Anyone who's interested, yeah, look, look up, up Leeds. <laughs> in Eden, I think it's directly south or southwest, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting village, too, because there's a few distinct things about it that a ride is more likely to happen there than elsewhere. It's quite spiritual and socially divided before this riot or before this schism of 1849, in that the town and its people, it's largely a working-class town. It's mostly made up of weavers with a few middle-class people who pay them or help run other aspects of the town. At the moment, I can't say much about what the political loyalties of these people were. I haven't quite gotten that far down in the research yet. But I can say that most of the people were very enthusiastically in favor of revivalism. They're in favor of that old-timey Methodism of, you know, let's get excited and go into church and cheer and feel God again and get more people in the church, the kind of thing Jabez Bunting has his doubts about. In fact, Eden in many ways is like, it's a child of revival. Wesley had gone there when he was preaching, and he had said, oh, I love this town because the people are real enthusiastic for Methodism. They like what I'm preaching. And so it's kind of a bit of a Methodist 
strongholds. And even in the 1830s, there were other revivals. A minister named Samuel Wilde actually writes to Jabez Bunting saying, we've had a great season of revival. You should come and see this. And Bunting basically says, no thanks, I'm really not into revival. I think this is actually kind of anarchic. Middle class people don't like the idea of shouting and crying and carrying on. They want to see orderly church services with a bit of passion, but not, you know, people throwing themselves out of windows and things like that. That's just, that's just damage to property. Can't have that. So there's a spiritual kind of radicalism in Eden amongst the working class Wesleyan Methodists. It also had a general tradition of local lawlessness. In fact, the very, I'd say the very geography of the town spoke to the weakness of central authority, in that it had no town design, really. It just kind of went up as it went up. There's kind of streets everywhere. There's no central design to it. What was the industry in Eden at the time? Weaving, mostly. Weaving, yeah, sorry, like much of Yorkshire, yeah. yeah. I think there were a couple of factory buildings yeah. in Eden, because I know the Luddites, the famous machine breakers, mm-hmm. do attack a mill in Eden, and then other Eden weavers go and join the Luddites. This is in the 1810s, and go and attack some other local mills. So I guess the Industrial Revolution kind of made it piecemeal. Yeah, it's kind of... It's kind of like there's factories there. There's also people doing the traditional piecework where they, you know, they come in, they bring the stuff home, they do the weaving, they mm-hmm. bring it back. So it's a mixture of very new industrial practices and older industrial practices and just a poorly designed town and poorly policed. It doesn't have its own constables. If there's a riot in Eden, you need to call them from a local town. It doesn't have its own magistrate. So it's kind of a Wild West <laughs> almost kind of village uh, where anything goes and has gone. So if a riot's going to break out here, or multiple riots, it's going to take a while to get them under control. And people kind of know that. They know that if they riot now, a consul might come a couple of hours later, but there's a lot that can be done mm-hmm. in a couple of hours. So it's a bit of a powder keg. And it's in this context, really, that the first of these riots uh, begins to erupt. And there are, I think, three. Two small ones, one big one, where people actually get shot. We know of all this because there were court cases. A lot of the rioters get brought to court. You know, to lead a riot is an offense. You can't just go around smashing things, as you can't today. And so they end up before the Leeds magistrates, or the Yorkshire magistrates, the Yorkshire Assizes. And there's one member of the Assizes, a guy named the Reverend J.A. Rhodes, who is an Anglican. An Anglican minister sits as a magistrate who hears all three cases. And by the end, as we're going to see, is obviously very sick of hearing anything about these Eden Methodists. Doesn't want to hear from them anymore. He's heard three cases, and he's sick of them. In the first case... Well, the first two riots, basically, are relating to a minister, a Wesleyan minister named William Shrewsbury, who's a Wesleyan Tory in a Wesleyan Reform village. And so the Wesleyan Reformers basically try to get control of the preaching house and the chapel. They think, we form the majority in this village, we want this preacher's house, we want the chapel. Shrewsbury says no. He says, I'm a good member of the conference, we're not giving this up to these insurgent Methodists. I didn't need it for my dwindling but still loyal congregation. And so there are several riots. At one point, the rioters hurled rocks through the windows of Shrewsbury's house and chalked the walls with warnings that a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. So they chalked that on his walls and run away. Shrewsbury eventually leaves. He just gets out when people start throwing rocks at his family, goes to a neighboring village and hides out there. In response, the magistrate's court actually bound over two of the rioters. So they basically make them pay a bond not to riot further. One of them is a young man named Hiram Yeadon, who's going to play a major role in a few minutes. And then there's a woman named Anne Marshall, who are both charged with leading this first riot by picking up stones and throwing them at the minister's house. At this point, a merchant and Wesleyan Tory, a layman named William Starkey, decided it would be best to remove the furniture from the preacher's house. We're not entirely sure why he thought this was the best move at this point with the village in an uproar to try and take couches and furniture out of the place and move them to a neighboring village or a safer place. Well, Shrewsbury's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it all gets very weird <laughs> at this point. He sees, Starkey seems to have done this on his own initiative. Maybe he might be one of the um, stewards of the property. We don't, yeah. I'm not sure. But at this point, seeing furniture moved, another Wesleyan reform mob intervenes and starts throwing rocks and sods of earth and threatening to tear down the whole building. So basically they block the wagon that all the furniture's in, throw things at it, and they have to put it back into the preaching house. So the lead magistrates, again, they intervene, they commit more of the rioters to the York Assizes to answer for their actions. No doubt in the hope that this will finally settle things, right? So you've got two riots, you send people off to the Assizes, which are kind of, you know, the regional court, mm-hmm. which will sentence people to prison if necessary, or hang them. They don't usually hang people for this kind of thing, but it's always a threat in England. 
Basically, everyone leans back and says, oh, thank goodness, this is all over now. We'll have peace in this village. But that's not going to happen. Because the third and most violent of these riots took place on the evening of the 13th of March, 1853. And the difficulty of talking about this is that the magistrate's court at Leeds was never able to reconcile the conflicting testimony of everybody involved. Which makes so it, nobody really knows what happened. Not exactly. I suspect I know what happened. But okay. Because one story is pretty out there, and the other one you think, yeah, that's, that's probably what yeah. happened. <laughs> One thing we can say with certainty is that this third riot originated in a compromise between that came out of the first and second riots. Being the most numerous group in Yeadon, the Wesleyan reformers seized the Methodist chapel, even though legally it remained in the property of the Wesleyan Methodist Church. So basically they've just taken it over. They go in there and they sit and they say, this is our chapel now. But the Wesleyan Tories retained undisputed control of the preacher's house. So they're connected. So one group has the chapel, the other has the house, and they sort of stare at each other. Kind of, you know, there's an uneasy tension building mm -hmm. between these two groups. Like, who's going to draw their gun first in this Pretty much. West? <laughs> Who is going to shoot first? Yeah. The tension increased when Jabez Bunting and his friends launched a suit to reestablish their hold over the chapel. So they go to what's called the Court of Chancery, which Charles Dickens famously makes fun of in Bleak House as being antiquated and draws everything out. In this case, it acts remarkably quickly. But they launch a suit in the Court of Chancery to reclaim Eden Chapel. Basically say these men are intruders. You know, men and women are intruders. Mm -hmm. They need to be thrown out and you need to give us full title to this chapel. So that ratchets up tension again when word gets out that these Wesleyan Tories are trying to get back what the Wesleyan reformers think is rightfully theirs. So straight, like I say, strains building and reached its fracturing point when a week before the riot, James Everett himself, the arch disturber of Wesleyan Methodism, decided to come to speak at that chapel in Eden. He says, I'm going to come and whip up the troops, you know, tell them you're fighting the devil, not you're doing God's work, keep to it. So he decides he is going to preach in the chapel, the best place, you know, he thinks to preach. But on the morning of the 13th of March, so the morning of the riot, an official from Bradford, that's all I've been able to find to identify this gentleman, <laughs> shows up with a letter to James Everett from the Wesleyan Methodist Conference denying him the use of the building. Basically, it's a lawyer, I think, that shows up saying, here's a legal order, you are not allowed to step foot in that chapel. So it went back to the non-reformists. Yeah, it goes back to the Wesleyan Tories, and in mm -hmm. London, they get a lawyer friend to drop a brief, basically saying, tell this man he's banned from our chapel, what is still our chapel. As a newspaper at the time said, this was a great disappointment to the Wesleyan reformers of Yeadon, who were forced to listen to their hero preach outdoors before he left the village that afternoon. Right, so he kind of just goes outside. In a tradition that would have been honored by Wesley himself, he kind of goes and preaches in the churchyard and tells people, I'm kind of imagining my own head, I have no proof of this, but I imagine him pointing at that chapel and saying, this should be yours, yeah. and so should that house, that preacher's house. These should both be ours by right of numbers and God. You know, We're on the God side, these guys are the devil. Etc. Etc. And then you can add the beautiful English weather to that, and yeah. add some ambiance. You know, <laughs> that's right. So the fog. And the, yeah, a March day in England, it might be kind of damp, more yeah. than likely. Yeah, probably. Uh, in the narrow streets of this village, so it would have been. I'm sure it would be very beautiful to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Can't don't understand why someone hasn't made a movie of this. Yeah, oh, I know. But sensing that some of these thwarted Wesleyan reformers might now be in a vindictive mood, uh, the Wesleyan Tories guarding the preacher's house went on to high alert as sort of the afternoon fades into the evening. And there's one thing the Wesleyan reformers who are sort of beginning to get all, get themselves all angered up in the village didn't know on this evening. And that was that the keeper of the house, a man named Thomas Mann, had hired a retired soldier named John Sykes to defend the building. And they had a blunderbuss stored in the grandfather clock. So a very old-timey kind of flintlock gun. I guess the kind you picture Puritans holding in the old-timey prints. It sort of looks like it has a mouth of a bugle. Mm -hmm. right. You can get off one good shot and we'll hit everybody. <laughs> it's sort of a scatter sort of weapon. I just kind of like the fact that he has it hidden in the grandfather clock. I don't know. That's a good detail to have. <laughs> it's like, that came up in every single court <laughs> transcript I read. It's like, they hid it in the grandfather clock. Yeah, like, it's not next to the door. Yeah, why would you not just leave it in the hallway <laughs> table? But, yeah. Okay. The ladies of the house, maybe they wanted to not have them be worried that there was a gun sitting on the table with an ex-soldier sort of cleaning it and getting ready to shoot. Possibly. So this, it's at this point that the accounts of what happened on this evening really start to diverge, as they will in any court case. The Wesleyan Tories who give evidence before the Assizes basically claim that a full-blown insurrection erupted at about 8.30 in the evening. 
with a crowd of reformers throwing rocks and shouting, we'll put them out, we'll flip them tonight, the devils have been in long enough. All which is very threatening. On the other hand, the Wesleyan reformers claim that it was a quiet night. Nothing was, <laughs> nothing happen- nothing was happening. <laughs> and that John Sykes had fired into an almost empty street. He had just for no reason gotten that gun out of the grandfather clock, fired it into the street. And the Wesleyan reform argument is that they're doing this to what they call give color to the conference's suit in the court of chancery. They never quite explain how that would have helped mm-hmm. the case in Chancery to then just fire randomly into the Since street. Since the Tories already had the building, so yeah. they had no reason to defend it unless there was a threat, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which leads me to believe that the Wesleyan <laughs> Reform argument is made up. A little up. bit weaker. Yeah. <laughs> it's fairly clear there was a riot that night. There wasn't mm-hmm. just like, oh, it's a calm night and I got shot. <laughs> that seems unlikely. For no reason. Yeah. With the hidden gun. I was walking down the street and I got shot. So as I say, given what we know of Yeadon and these Wesleyan reformers and what's going on in the village, I think, yeah, there was a riot that night. Witnesses for both sides did agree that windows of the preacher's house were smashed early on in the evening, around 8.30, somewhere between 8.30 and 9. So there was destruction of property. Yeah. So if I'm correct, and there was a riot, which I think I am correct, the Wesleyan Tories in that preacher's house had good reason to fear that they would not be able to get away with their lives, as one of them put it afterwards. There's a large crowd, large angry crowd gathering, throwing rocks, smashing windows, screaming, we're going to flip them. Basically means like, we're going to kill them and get them out of that house. Also, there's the fact, which I found, that over the preceding weeks, Wesleyan reformers had attacked the preacher's house repeatedly. Exactly, yeah, with the furniture and the... Even even more recently, actually. Oh, yeah? They had stuffed straw down the chimney in an effort to suffocate the occupants. That's terrible. (laughs) They'd also cut the gas line leading into the house. That sounds dangerous. Yeah, both things very basically <laughs> very aiming dangerous. to either suffocate or blow up. Or, yeah, I was going to say destroy the house completely. <laughs> the people in the house. So yeah, like I said, when I read that, I said, yeah, these guys were not just there on a nice evening walk. Taking a stroll. And happened to get shot. <laughs> there was something big happening in this village. And there was a lot of tension before, as you yeah. put. So it, it yes. makes sense that it might culminate at some point. Yeah, that this thing is just going to blow sky high. Mm-hmm. And this, it happens to be just James Everett as he seems to do throughout his life, is the guy who throws a match in, then and goes says, away. Yeah, and walks away. And everything <laughs> blows up. It's kind of like those action films where you see the hero walking with a massive explosion. Yeah, In the that's background. Him. That's James Everett in my mind. Yeah. So a crowd is gathering here, outside this preacher's house of angry Wesleyan reformers. And apparently, they declared that they were going to unroof the house. I'm not sure what that means. That means they're just going to blow the whole thing up, perhaps. Burn yeah, down kind, the, the roof. Kind of like a Three Little Pigs kind of a... Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe it was an expression of the time. I think it must have been some sort yeah. of Yorkshire expression. The rioters also demanded to know if old Jabez Bunting was in the house. And then they cursed the old conference. So I think this is very focused on Muslim reform issues. Mm-hmm. So as the stones started to crash through the windows and bounce off shutters, as a building, they fitted it wisely with some shutters... Thomas Mann, keeper of the preacher's house, ordered this ex-soldier, John Sykes, to fire his blunderbuss into the street to scare, scatter the besiegers, mm-hmm. right, relieve the tension, protect the, the women house. and children that were in the house. So at this point, one of the participants in the riots of 1852, so those earlier two riots, the weaver Hiram Yeadon, got shot in the legs. As Sykes fires into the street, he is hit. Yeadon collapsed into the road, yelling, Oh dear, they have shot me. That's what he testified in court. I suspect it was a bit more salty. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I got shot. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I don't know if I could just say, oh dear, I've been shot. Um, Unless there's little ears around maybe and you're trying to be kind. I don't know. I don't know. I'm hoping they didn't bring kids to the riot. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> you, you never know. But how do you get a babysitter for that? That's I mean, true. hey, I'm going out tonight to riot. There you know, must how about have been a crowd on the outskirts. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. yeah. Where the, some of the women might have been around too. That's true. And now I'm just picturing like this sort of this crowd. It's like people eating popcorn watching yeah, the riot. Exactly. You Almost. go! <laughs> we'll stay behind the front lines. That's right. Yeah. That's a safe place to be in a riot. Sure. So here I'm eating gets shot in the legs. Another mm-hmm. weaver, John Marshall, was shot in the face. Because mm-hmm. again, the blunderbuss just kind of fires pellets in all directions. So Marshall staggered backward, exclaiming, apparently, Well, they have shot me too. Mm, they're very Which, controlled. They are yeah. very, very polite young Methodists. <laughs> yes. For rioters, they're very, very polite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so some of the crowd escorted Hiram Yeadon to a neighboring house. While a relative, Henry Yeadon, made his way, broke his way into the preacher's house. He just smashes through the door, hammers on the door, saying, you know, you're shooting people out here. 
Once he was in, Henry Eden found a very panicked group of Wesleyan Tories. And they realized they've shot a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. The crowds are even more angry. Damn thee, Henry Eden apparently yelled, thou hast killed the lad, we'll do thee thy job. And the speaking sort of the Yorkshire dialect of thee and thouing. Yeah. Um, seems to be a bit of Quaker influence there too. Two of the Wesleyan Tories, that merchant William Starkey and his brother John, then hit Henry Eden with a stick. Because shooting in the leg wasn't enough. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then they dragged him into the house and bolted the door. So it's, it's getting really weird now. So they've opened the door, this guy screamed, you tried to kill people, and they hit him with a stick, pull him through, bolt the door again. As Henry Eden screamed, break in, they are tearing my clothes and will kill me, John Sykes fled. Being a good soldier, he knows when to retreat. And he says, right, I think I'm going to... I'm not part of this I'm part. going out the back now. Yeah. You guys are on your own. The riot finally ended when, the, when two constables finally arrived and broke into the preacher's house and arrested the Wesleyan Tories. Because they were the men who were, at that point, trying to beat a man with a stick in the living room mm-hmm. while firing into the street. And the consuls are just arresting guys holding weapons. And you really can't arrest a whole rioting mob of people. So I think it's Starkey and one of the other men in the chapel was arrested. John Sykes they captured a month later. Because he goes on the lam. He takes off. He makes a runner. He doesn't want to get caught. Apparently the county constables found him enveloped in fleeces of wool in the loft of the house of a wool comber named James Gott, who was also taken into custody for sheltering a fugitive. So I guess being wrapped in wool was comforting. And... <laughs> I guess. That's not the idea. They got to find him, like, under all these sheep. Yeah. The sheep all in the like, you're nicked. Yeah. And grab him. And poor John, yeah, this poor guy, James Gott, he just gets sucked into sort of the, mm-hmm. into the dragnet. He probably knew, I'm fairly certain he knew. They seemed to have been friends. He must he have been Sykes. involved in something. Yeah. Yeah. So there's now four men under arrest and on their way to the York Assizes, which tend to frown on riotous mm-hmm. kind of behavior. So all of them, <laughs> these four guys, as well as other witnesses, appear before the magistrates at Leeds and then on to the judge at the York Assizes. As I say, the magistrates and the judge, from what I can gather, are completely baffled as to what actually happened on this night. And the finer details, everything conflicts with everything else. Rocks were thrown, rocks were not flown, yeah. you know. Empty they street, shot at us. Yeah, empty street. Yeah. He beat me with a stick, he didn't beat me, we didn't beat him with a stick. Somebody had popcorn, somebody did not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> someone was cursing when they were shot, someone wasn't. It's all, yeah. it's all very weird. So the legal minds of Yorkshire seize on the three indisputable facts that they discover in cross-examination. First, that Thomas Mann ordered John Sykes to fire his blunderbuss. Yes. Everyone admits... Even the guys in the house admit that that happened. Because somebody fired it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, someone hears a gun go off, everyone hears a gun go off, and there was a guy shot in the leg, another guy shot in the face. Mm-hmm. Second, that Hiram Yeadon and John Marshall were in fact shot. I mean, that's an undisputable fact. They just look at him. And the man shot in the face, there's mm-hmm. the wounds on his leg. He almost lost the leg, but they save it. And the other fact is that James Gott had harbored John Sykes. By one bundling him up in wool. For yeah. comfort. <laughs> <laughs> to make him look like a sheep. Yeah, I don't know. Totally. So those three facts established. The law now took its course. Mm-hmm. Right? The judge at the York Assizes found Mann and Sykes guilty of discharging a gun with the intent of doing grievous bodily harm. Not quite murder, right? which is a hanging Hang offense. Yeah, I was say. Say, grievous bodily harm is lesser. And they found Gott guilty of being an accessory after the fact. So Mann and Sykes were sentenced to a month in prison, and Gott received a shorter sentence of two weeks in York Castle. So relatively lenient, actually, yeah. for having almost tried to kill people and harboring fugitives of a possible mm-hmm. murder rap. That marked the limit of the criminal court's willingness to hear from the warring Methodists of this village, of Eden. So when Henry Eden charged William and John Starkey with assault, the long-suffering magistrates declared that the evidence was of so conflicting and contradictory a character that they had determined to leave the case where they found it. That's what they say, everyone, get <laughs> Wash out. Wash our hands yeah. of it. Yeah, we're <laughs> we don't done. want to hear from you idiots yeah. anymore. So figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, kill each other. We don't care. Yeah. We don't want to see no it. No more involvement on our end. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you got to imagine, like, the head of the, as I said, the head of the magistrate's court is an Anglican minister. It's just, yeah. It's been just head in hands going, like, what is happening? What's wrong with these children? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get your act together, people. You never yeah. should have left the Church of England. As if to underline this point that the churches were done or the courts were done with the Methodists, mm-hmm. in December 1853, the Court of Chancery reached its decision and that it granted all legal rights to the chapel in Yeadon to the Wesleyan Tories. 
the Tories got everything. They got the everything. The chapel, the house, everything. <laughs> everything. So if the Western Reform aim was to get those things, it failed miserably. Absolutely, the courts yeah. sided definitely with the Wesleyan Tories against rioting yeah. and just seizure, illegal seizure of property. So even though they didn't get charged for probably rioting, they still yeah. lost it all. Yeah. So to find this information, yeah. you're looking a lot at the court cases, as you've mentioned. Yeah. Were there newspapers around the time? It was mostly time? the newspapers yeah. I used, yeah. Because yeah. the court case, I actually have a friend, former professor, who did some work for me looking at for the legal records of the actual court cases. And apparently the Yorkshire Assizes did not keep detailed court transcripts. They just mm-hmm. kind of kept the decisions, which are interesting to see. I, I actually had the handwritten. Did they have, like, court reporters for the newspapers? Reporters could go to court, could go to the Assize, which is what happened in the newspapers, both you know, independent sort of newspapers mm-hmm. and the Methodist newspapers. They send reporters that report in detail about what everyone said in the court. The other thing is sometimes it conflict. The accounts don't usually conflict that much. You think they would, but they don't. They're mostly pretty accurate one to the other, though some have more detail than others. Like the Methodist newspaper, The Watchman, has the most detailed accounts, because, of course, they want to think we were innocent. These guys are terrible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've been mostly been working with the newspapers and with... Well, information produced by other people, Everett, William Shrewsbury, the minister, William Starkey, uh, some of the bigger figures. I've mm-hmm. of, like Shrewsbury writes letters to the Missionary Society and to other people like Jabez Bunting saying, oh my God, you can't believe what's happening in this village, i got to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of lays, gives you a bit more thicker description of what's and happening. And gives you a little more idea of the personalities. Yeah, all involved. of these people seem to be very difficult people. Uh, <laughs> Shrewsbury, like Everett, had a, had, seemed to have a talent for just angering everyone in his life. People just seemed to be perpetually angry with him. He was a failure as a missionary. He went to, I think, South Africa, and they didn't like him there. He went to the Caribbean, I think, and they didn't like him there either. So he came back, and they didn't like him here. Um, and Everett just is a bit of a wild card. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I kind of both respect Passionate. him, like him, and think he's just just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> That's this massive ball of destruction. There's a lot of layers to people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, is that layered... In, towards the good or towards, you know, maybe not so good? Yeah, it depends where you think the Methodist Church should have been going. I mean, Bunting and his friends had a point. It needed to move in a more middle-class direction to survive. Monetarily. Big churches need yeah. money. Yeah, no, they do. Missionaries' yeah. work needs money. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were going to sell out in some way, mm-hmm. one way or another. I mean, Everett's idea, Everett Dunn and Griffith's idea of going back to the old Methodism, you know, the pure Methodism is kind of a... Well, their version of the old Methodism is kind of an imaginary version where, you know, they never needed money. They just preached mm-hmm. and God provided. It was never like that. But they want to imagine it was. And they want to recapture that, but I think it's trying to recapture something that never existed. Yeah, once the institution of a church is started, yeah. then you have fees and costs. And yeah, you <laughs> gotta, you got to pay those bureaucrats. You gotta, yeah. you gotta, there's got to be paperwork. You gotta, yeah. you got to put up new buildings. And if you're going to compete with the Anglicans, they got to be big. Yeah. So. So the Methodist churches in England, they're still around, I would imagine. Yes. And yeah. are they as grand as the Anglican? Have you seen some pictures? The Methodist church, are, I think. Or are they... Do in they the like 19th century, simple? they never are more than 2 to 5%. I could be wrong. I don't, yeah. don't necessarily... Anyone listening, don't necessarily quote me on that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But they're not Canada, quite the scale? No. No, okay. I mean, they have some big, very nice big churches, mm-hmm. but I mean, Anglicanism has state support. Yeah, of course. So you can't really compete. Yeah. Um, and then when that came in the North Americas? In Canada, Methodism is, by the end of the 19th century, is the largest Protestant denomination in Canada. Wow. So they have so a much big, better run yeah. here. To the United States, too? Where they're also a massively powerful church. It all seems like freed from sort of the political struggles of, well, freed from an established church, largely. Methodism can flourish uh, much more than it can in England, where it has to deal with the Church of England. <laughs> the Church of England, yeah, yeah, with Anglicanism that is just there. Like yeah. a, sort of a mountain you have to get around. I mean, there is a, sort of an established church in Upper Canada until the 1840s, but it's never quite the same established church mm. as there is in England. Yeah, so the Methodists were able to build yeah. their their followers here. In a much bigger way than yeah. they are. Much less restricted. Yeah, less, less writing. <laughs> there's, well, there's disputes. Of, actually, the British Wesleyan missionaries come here and compete with the American Methodist oh, missionaries. No. <laughs> and there is, there is quite a bit of rioting and people being locked out of churches or nailing themselves into pulpits to okay. make sure the enemy, yeah. the enemy cannot force them out. So, yeah, so Canadian Methodism also has its... <laughs> a side that people don't often know about. It's much more exciting. People often hear Methodism and just think, oh, boring. You know, they're sort of God, godly people who don't drink and it's very boring. But in fact, their, their early history is quite... 
quite something. Well, that's most churches. Yeah. The early histories <laughs> are always true. really it's not, interesting. Like early Christianity. That's well, a lot that's of wild stuff. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> interesting time. So all of these players, they stuck around England and they yes. just kept going and yep. living their lives and not causing too much trouble after this, I guess. Yeah. By the late 1850s or the mid-1850s, Everett Dunn and Griffith have realized their attempt to storm the heights of the Wesley Methodist Church from outside have failed. So they formed their own church, a Wesleyan Reformed Church, uh, which does build its own chapel in Eden. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, there's a grand reopening where actually a newspaper at the time reports that there was no rioting for once. So I <laughs> well, would have thought some Wesleyan Tories could have come and thrown a few rocks just, just, for, for, yeah. just for the tradition. Sure, why not? Um, it's like a baptism of the, the chapel. <laughs> just the guys involved in the riot itself. The Wesleyan Tory merchant, William Stark, he, he actually prospers for quite a while. Until the late 1860s, when for some reason he seems to have become obsessed with the idea that he had cracked the puzzle of perpetual motion. Mm-hmm. And he sinks all of his fortune into proving this, or attempting to prove it in ever bigger sort of perpetual motion machines, all of which fail as perpetual motion. Is of course. I'm almost imagining like a steampunk machine. He tried to build a three-story thing with a giant rolling thing that would constantly... Interesting, yeah. He takes out ads, he gives talks. Somehow and... fails because we don't have perpetual motion, so I'm guessing yeah, that never... was not a good venture. No. And he died in 1879, apparently asserting the reality of his discoveries to the very end. Like on his deathbed, kind of, I've cracked perpetual motion. Pat him on the head. No, you didn't. But go with God. The man at the center of the third riot, the reformer Hiram Eden, he goes on to even stranger things after the riots. Uh, Within 10 years of the shooting, he had apparently left weaving and taken up dog racing, Hmm. bet making, and petty theft. So he kind of went the wrong way. Yeah, he kind of goes right out of Methodism. Uh, not the way they want you to go, sort of towards greater holiness. He kind of backslides. If it's the same guy, in the three years between 1863 and 66, he, had be, he appeared before the Leeds magistrates charged with robbery, stealing a boxwood tree, helping to organize an illegal boxing match, and trying to shoot a bar owner. If it is the same guy, he also did suffer considerable personal tragedy, and that his son died while playing a game sliding off banisters, I think. He fell and smashed his head and died of the contusions. So it is him. He has various issues in his life mm-hmm. beyond being shot in a riot. But interestingly enough, when Eden had the chance to vote for its first school board in March of 1874, they actually cast their ballots for Hiram Eden in a landslide. Oh. They elect him to the school board, thinking that there's more going on here that I have to look yeah. into. And there's a large clan of Eden, so I have to go into genealogy and the census and find out, is there more than one? And it could also be a good, you know, it could be father and son because the son died, unless there's another son. That I don't know about. And he was just a, into bad things. Yeah. <laughs> it could be Possibly. the younger son who uh, is kind of the wild child. You know, teenagers, right? Well, that's the joy of historical research, right? You kind of <laughs> just, you're never done. You're like, oh, i got to yeah. find out more. Then you yeah. got to go deeper. So, so yeah. then it's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. I think the Leeds Municipal Archives has the records from Eden. So I might have to go to Leeds at some point. Oh, how terrible. I know. It'll oh, be rough. <laughs> You have to send us some pictures of Leeds. <laughs> me. Just me. Because I like to go to Eden and see yeah. actually how the streets are laid out. It's yeah. apparently, it's changed, I'm sure. But uh, the, the Wesleyan be, Chapel is still yeah. there. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures of it anyway. So. Well, that'd be interesting to visit after all this. Uh... Yeah. Well, there's thing I just happened to come across this. I was reading, doing research about this fly sheets agitation. I just read in passing. Someone mentioned this riot in Eden and... What they call two conference men being arrested for firing a gun into somebody's face. And I just said, hello. I need to check <laughs> I need to look into this. <laughs> yeah. So I took out a subscription to British newspaper archive and mm-hmm. I was off to the races. Because that's a, that's that's a, a wonderful resource. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I use that a lot from my thesis too. Absolutely. So I have a funny question. You have a time machine and you can come back safely. You're not going to die. You can be either observing or even being part of the history. What would you want to do? It doesn't have to be the riots, actually. If any time in history that you'd like to either observe or partake in. I'm a big fan of the French Revolution. I would love to go back to the National Convention, the government of the terror, mm-hmm. and just to be there and see what that was like, to see Robespierre and Saint-Just and Danton and all those guys in action. Mm-hmm. So I've read so much about them. I think that would be fascinating. You get a sense of just how feral that politics was. And who these people actually yeah. were as people. To hear them, yeah. to actually hear historical voices. You mean you read descriptions and you kind of think, oh, you got a sense. Mm-hmm. Some people say Rosebeer had a high, quite high-pitched, thin voice. I'd like to know what that's... How, what did, does he, that how did he then get the attention of a room full of 700 deputies? Apparently he would just get up there and he'd kind of oh. stand up on his tiptoes <laughs> to talk and he would just command the room. I'd just like to know how. 
personality. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is obviously charisma, and yeah. they know him. Well, he dresses differently by then. He's dressing like a man of the old regime with mm. a powdered wig and a nice vest. And so he's, he it's looks quite commanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. your that's, that's your my go-to that's, thing. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I said yes. Yeah, and I, I don't risk being guillotined. So I'm so I'm in front of invisible, yeah, floating no, above yeah, the convention. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, <laughs> fly on the wall. <laughs> I put that question on exams. Yeah, you oh, always really? have to be clear. It's like you cannot be hurt. You can talk whatever yeah. language. You don't language yeah, is not yeah. a barrier. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because some historians are like, "Wow, that's not possible," and you can't. But it, it's a fun type of question that I like to ask. I think if, we, we'd all like to go back and I, see these people. See something that we were interested in. Absolutely. Yeah. Imagine it'll take you a long, imagination takes you a long way, but you'd really like to. Yeah. It's like it's always fun to visit, even if it's changed massively, the places where these things Absolutely. happen. Absolutely. And try to imagine what it might have been like, which when is I half the fun. visited Paris, I saw, like, this is where the National Convention was, this is where Danton lived. About everything would seem to be about 40-minute walks. So these, these guys would have been running into each other constantly, mm-hmm. which you don't often think, think about. about. Like yeah. in this village of Eden, like these Wesleyan oh, Forest and Tories. Yeah. And they had to be interacting every day. Which is something I probably will never be able to get a sense of because they don't, you don't, that doesn't usually leave records. Usually, someone doesn't write, I saw so and so, man, they pissed me off today. Yeah, Yeah, we don't know the day to day. And if they're living in a small village, I mean, the Tinder for these riots might be even deeper. It might be, you know, a deeper. Sure, there's years of, some part of it must be like people who take sides because, you know, he's on that side, so Mm -hmm. I'm going to be on this side. Like I said, there does seem to be a class thing too, where the middle class tend to be more Wesleyan and Tory and the working class. Wesleyan reformer. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a divide in the town. Yeah, and like I said, I'd like to know how they vote because I suspect the reform working class reformers tend to vote liberal. That sounds like and it. middle class ref- Tories tend to vote conservative. Well, yeah. To be Disraeli's people and you know, Gladstone's people, or whoever was in charge of the party. Yeah. <laughs> I <would> get confused. <laughs> That'd be Darby, know. actually. But anyways. Yeah, I don't know. I I try to stay away from the politics of that time. <laughs> it's just so complicated to me. <laughs> As parties are formed and reformed and yes. deformed, yeah. Quite a bit. One person once, or a friend once described my work on Methodism as being politics without parties. Which I ah, know that's a fairly yeah. accurate <laughs> description. There's a lot of politics. Other than the revival thing, Methodists don't tend to argue that much about theology because Wesley gave them their theology. Mm, okay. I mean, they argued some of the finer points, as any theologians sure. do. And they weren't trained or educated from the get-go Kind no, of like, a, would be... like the reformers, if you will, where they're trained in Augustine theories and then... Yeah. No, they're just establishing the first Wesleyan ministerial colleges about this time, about the 1830s, 1840s, and so they're graduating the first couple of classes. Mm-hmm. Well, men who are already on trial, they're younger men, I would imagine late teens, early 20s, can elect to go to college and be better mm-hmm. educated because they say, you know, we want an educated ministry like the Anglicans. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because people are going to want more erudite sermons. They're not necessarily going to want to be coming every week and screaming, you're going to hell unless you find God. Exactly, yeah. The fear tactics. Yeah. Yeah. Works with revivals. And and reforms. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I know that in your office you have pictures of your cat. And there's quite a great story that goes along with your cat. And the name. Oh, yes. Yeah, my name. (laughs) Uh, She's named Christabel. Christabel Harriet. So I had to name her because my other great interest is the British suffragette movement, the radical suffragette movement of Britain and America. And one of their leaders is Christabel Pankhurst, mm-hmm. uh, the daughter of Emmeline Pankhurst. And Christabel's interesting. She took part in the early hunger strikes, but then went over to Paris to direct the suffragette campaign from there. Mm-hmm. They would go back and hunger strike and, you know, blow up post office boxes, blow up uh, Lloyd George's new house mm-hmm. at one point. And so I thought that's a great name for a cat, and I just love Christabel Pankhurst. Because cats have a lot of personality. They do. <laughs> Not that's as violent. That's Christabel Pankhurst. She's actually a very nice kitty. But yeah. uh, it was funny, the first night I had her, after naming her Christabel, I woke up and I heard this rip downstairs. I went down and there was the back of an old chair, and she had just opened it up. And I said, oh, you're living up to your name. Yeah, causing disruption. <laughs> that's right. But she's never done it again. I think it was like her, like they say in prison, you're supposed to, you know, beat someone up the first day uh-huh. to yeah, yeah. Well, destroy this chair. And because, so you know, I can do it. Yes. <laughs> Just do whatever I say going yeah. forward and we'll be fine. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know there's a, your door gets papered throughout oh, the yes, year. Oh, yes, we have cat wars. Cat wars, okay. Yes, where people post pictures of cats and cat related cartoons on my door and then uh, some claims have a better cat yes there's also mm-hmm. all the cat owners then go at it and mm-hmm. next year i might expand it into pet wars so the oh. dog people 
There you together. go. Then we can maybe have a division between kids. We can unite the cat people. Oh, I see. Against yeah. the dog people. Yeah, it caused a little bit of a riot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least some, maybe some uh, grumbling in the atrium as yes. we walk by. So cats are best. Dogs are best. <laughs> the forever ongoing discussions, right? <laughs> That's right. What happens when you have both? I don't know. Do you still prefer one? I don't know how that works, right? Uh, those are the neutrals. and The neutrals. They have, you have to pick your side. Or stay out, I guess. You can, I guess, You can be yeah. neutral that way. What if you introduced a new animal, like a gecko or something? That would be fun. That would probably be in the center. Everyone else would be sort of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Someone could go full in and introduce a giraffe, and then we'd have to investigate. Yeah. Or an elephant. (laughs) This would be the elephant in the room. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) It'd take up too much of your door, though. (laughs) you got to have a lot of property. Yeah. (laughs) You'd have to have the whole hallway all the way down. So I guess there was someone somewhere, if it was... I saw a show, I think it was somewhere in South Africa, maybe, or Kenya, that had a hippo they kept in the house. Oh, really? Or maybe it would just wander in. Maybe they didn't keep it in the house, but they'd let it wander through the house and say, wow, they're just there, sleeping yeah. in the family room. Sure. So that is a big animal. That is a house. big animal. I mean, my dog's big, but that's that's a lot bigger. <laughs> that would definitely scare you if you walk into a house and you see a hippo. It's <laughs> like, don't rob that house. Nope. That's the hippo house. Stay away from there. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk about these riots and all the really intricate weaving that happened. Not to play on the words of the weavers, but... (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But all the intricate weavings that happened to, you know, culminate to this riot. Or perhaps this non-riot, depending on what course... (laughs) Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Yeah, maybe they just shot randomly and hit people, you know. (laughs) And broke... Those windows just got broken Oh, yeah, it was just, you know, something happened. Yeah, must have been. Or rain, really strong rain in England. Yeah. But I really appreciate you coming on and talking about a subject in which you are interested and have researched and for answering my millions of questions, as usual. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) I really appreciate it, Dr. Webb. Thanks. Thank you. I guess I have to apologize for our cheesy humor. Dr. Webb and I seem to have a very similar sense of humor. So thanks for bearing with us. For the book recommendation, Dr. Webb pointed out that unfortunately there's not many Wesleyan Methodist books that talk about the schism of 1849. Although, by the way, he's in the process of writing one. So keep an eye out. He does have a book on the transatlantic Methodists. British Wesleyanism, and the formation of an evangelical culture in the 19th century Ontario and Quebec. Oh, that's quite the tongue twister for me. It's a great book. It has a lot of insight, and it is very interesting to see how Methodism in Canada fits into the wider British world. The Schism of 1849 does appear as a factor, but it's not the only topic. So if you enjoyed this, definitely pick up his book. And as usual, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at HistoryA. You can check out the website, HistoryA.com. Send me an email, send me a message. I love hearing from you. And of course, rating the podcast apparently helps people find me. So that's always fun. I would love people to hear more about all these different topics. And as usual, I absolutely want to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.